morning, y'all. Second as I get this turned on and ready. Can you hear me all right? It is a blessing to be back with y'all, as always. It feels like coming home to family at this point, and uh, Kaylee knows this. On the car ride to any time I preach, I am nervous. I get, I get really nervous. But being in your presence, being here worshiping God with y'all, I, I feel at ease. I feel like you are good people. I love you. You love me, and I am thankful for that. I'm honored to be here at the, the beginning of the year as we... Starting 2024, the first Sunday of the year. And I want to bring a message. Of course, I want to bring a message that you'll carry with you throughout the week and throughout your life. But specifically now, as I've prepared this lesson, I was thinking about the coming year and and asking myself, how can we bring hope forward? How can we, as God's people, light a beacon of hope, not just for our lives, but for those around us. Do you remember what it was like as a child to hope for something? As a kid, you have the entire world ahead of you. It's exciting. Everything is new, and you grow up on stories of good triumphing over evil. You enter life with innocence and, and expectation, something on the horizon. It feels as if the world is it's yours to explore, and the future, it's just full of hope. As a kid, this reminded me, uh, I used to be strong, and you'd get big You would probably see snow in January, enough to Christmas to make you kind of hope for it. And you know that expectation where you're like checking the weather, and you're, you're looking outside, and you see like some rain, and you're thinking maybe that's going to turn into snow? Maybe you don't, maybe you do, I don't know, but that was me. I, I had this hope. I was excited. I was expecting something. I want us to sit for a moment and remember what it was like to be that child, to be that child full of hope. Because somewhere along the way, we become more pragmatic. We get used to disappointment. And we stop putting ourselves out there. We stop hoping. It seems to me that just the same can happen for us Christians, though. We can also become pragmatic and and stagnant in the hope that we place in Jesus. Not on purpose, but we can get so used to hearing about His sacrifice, we hear it every Sunday, and, and it's over and over again, and His coming return, and somewhere along the way, sometimes, and this, this isn't a good thing, this, this is just how it happens for some Christians, we get so used to it, we, we stop expecting, we stop having that passion burning for the return of Christ. You do it every Sunday, over and over and over again. For others, there may be pain in life, something that's just filling you with sorrow, and it's, it's taking away that expectation. And maybe some of us are even starting to begin to wonder, after all of these years, 2,000, Years of waiting on Jesus, is he ever coming back? See, hope is a very powerful thing, and we, we understand that as children. It can, it can light up our world, or without hope, we can feel lost in darkness. And so as we're entering into this new year, that's what I want us to focus on, hope. If we build our expectation, our foundation strong, and we are not just this week, but forever, so let's examine today, look at it. Of course, 
named after him, Isaiah, who sees the terrible sin of his people and knows that God's wrath is soon going to come for them. We talked about this a lot in Bible class, Bible class but I'm going to recap some of it for us today. Israel has made a covenant relationship with God. It's 700 years before Jesus' has, before Jesus's birth. Sorry. This is 700 years before Jesus' birth. And Isaiah is preaching and trying to, to teach the people of Israel, you are doing wrong. There is sin in your life, and this sin has separated you from God. And it has, has filled up so much to the point that God's wrath is coming against you. At first glance, it looks hopeless for God's people. Who wants to be at, at the hands of an, of an angry God? But as the story continues, Isaiah begins to show that God's plan is to ultimately redeem Israel back to him. Tucked away in the later half of the book, Isaiah 53, we begin to see glimpses of the coming Messiah. Chapter 53 is, is one of those glimpses where we, we start to see not only Isaiah saying that God's going to bring Israel back from exile, he's going to bring his people back to the promised land, but some point in the future, he doesn't know when, the people don't know when, but some point a Messiah is going to come. And this Messiah is going to do wonderful things. And it's not really revealed. It's just little pieces of a puzzle. It reveals the servant of God who will die as a lamb for his people. This was the hope that God had given Israel, a promise of his faithfulness to them. But we are also given a promise about Jesus. And it is in this promise that we find our hope today. And to reassure you, before we dive into the study, let's ask ourselves, is the hope of Jesus truly reigning in our lives? The purpose of our lesson today is to examine Isaiah 53 so that we will renew our hope in Jesus, our hope in the Lamb of God. We'll spend the largest chunk of our time in Isaiah 53. Go ahead and turn there. And we'll take it by sections. We'll look at several aspects that Isaiah highlighted about the Messiah in this chapter. And after we've gone through all of them, we'll come back and we'll read it in its entirety so we get the full context. Read with me Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a, like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire in him. We despised, and he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds... We are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Looking through these first six verses, there's not a lot of good things going for this servant. He's pain and suffering. He doesn't seem like a popular fellow. His life, in just these few verses, look as if they're filled with, with nothing but suffering. It's interesting. Jesus was no fool. He was a student of Scripture. And he knew that his life wouldn't be easy. He knew who he was. He knew he was the Messiah. He prepared for it for 30 years. In fact, going back even before his life here on earth, we know that in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know from John 1.14 that the Word became flesh, that is, Jesus. So even back in the beginning, before Isaiah was ever inspired to write, Jesus knew that in order for man to be saved from death, he would have to come to earth in the form of man. He knew it from the beginning. He chose that life. He chose that suffering, knowing full well what it meant. He wasn't... He wasn't afraid of it. He wasn't blind to it. And he made that choice, not only for all of the world, Jesus made that choice for you. So what we've established is that Jesus chose to suffer in this life and still did not sin. Yet when we hit challenging times, we here today, when we're faced with challenges, we lose all hope. We go right back to whatever vice made us feel good in the moment. Jesus' life of being rejected by the world doesn't look appealing to us. We don't want to mirror that suffering that he had. Not, no logical, logical person would. It doesn't make sense. So why do we follow after him? Why would we follow The world would reject us in the same way. Verses 21 through 23. Turn there with me, if you would. That's 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps, do the same things that He did, and suffer in the same way He suffered. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Let's finish the chapter 24 and 25 as well. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus chose this path so that we might be healed by his wounds. Because I am healed by the blood of Jesus 
and no longer face eternal death for my sins. I don't face the punishment of my sins. I will gladly follow wherever my Savior leads. I will follow Him into suffering. I will follow Him into His death, burial, and resurrection. And because He is my Savior, and because His promises stand true, I will follow Him into eternal life. We talked about suffering He endured, but this next section, verses 7-9, through if you'll turn back to Isaiah 53, verses 7-9 through foretells the blood that would be shed. He didn't just suffer a hard time. He was oppressed and afflicted. the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression, my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In verse 7, it says, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did not protest against uh, the suffering. He did not stop them. He, he, as the Son of God, could have called down 10,000 angels. More. But he endured the cross. He endured the road to Calvary. He took the beatings. And he died. He was slaughtered. Brutally murdered. For what? What did he do to deserve that? What sin did he commit to deserve death? None. Like a spotless lamb, Jesus was was led to the slaughter and he died and bore our sins on the cross. The Israelites didn't understand this back when Isaiah was writing it. They didn't know what was coming. They couldn't have. God kept it, re- not revealed, sorry. God kept it hidden from them so that everything could be fulfilled as it was supposed to. Ask yourself, if the Israelites, if the Jews really knew who Jesus was, if they understood everyone, not just the people, but the priests, the leaders, the teachers of the law, if they knew who Jesus was, that He was their Messiah that they had been waiting several hundred years for, would they have killed Him? No. No, because they were expecting an earthly Messiah, a king that would reign on this earth. They wouldn't have killed that man. They had great expectations for Him. But Jesus had to die because someone had to pay the price for our sin. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. Not just the death that atheists believe in, where you you die and you cease to exist and there's nothing and you just fade away. That's That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Destruction. Everlasting death. That's what we deserve. Because we chose 
sin, which is separation from God, which is disobedience of His will. The Israelites did it. We do it as well. We deserve that death. And that doesn't sound very hopeful, I know, but there's more coming because it's not, it's not where God leaves us. Christ paid that debt. I still remember the, the first time that I was in charge of butchering one of our chickens for dinner. We grew up on a small farm. Nothing grand like you have here in West Texas, I assure you. It was just backyard stuff. Had a handful of chickens, and we would butcher them. We'd raise them for eggs, and then when it was time, we'd have them for dinner. Well, <clears throat> Dad told me that it was time for me to go handle the chicken and make sure that it was processed and butchered. And I had processed them before. I hadn't actually butchered them. And I wanted to make my dad proud. So I, I promptly went out the door and into the chicken coop, and I was ready to do what needed to be done. And don't get me wrong, I, there was, I don't have issues with butchering chickens, and I love eating chickens, I love eating all sorts of meat, but I remember very, very distinctly that first time that I went into the chicken coop, and I, and I knew for certain one of these chickens, I, mean, I'm not, I know I'm comparing apples and oranges, Christ is not a chicken, but I knew something was going to die. I get used to it, and I get used to it, and I get used to it. Jesus' death in a similar fashion. Because the first time that one realizes what Jesus has done, whether it's through a preacher or someone else teaching them that Jesus died a brutal death for their sins, the first time we realize it, it's a powerful moment in life. And we want to live better lives because of it once we understand but then, we kind of talked about it before at the beginning, over time, it's easy to start glossing over Jesus' death after hearing it every Sunday. Whatever the reason, whatever the desensitivity comes from, we as followers of Jesus must never, ever gloss over the sacrifice that He made for us. That is what our entire hope is built upon. Speaking of the Messiah, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. That is such a powerful, powerful statement. It means that... <clears throat> sorry. Grace means that we did not deserve forgiveness of our trespasses. It was, it was not something that we earned. Grace is, is a gift freely given, but let alone that it should come from the blood of Jesus. There are some who dub this chapter the forbidden chapter for the modern Jew. It's because when, when you compare the life of Jesus, and, and he's a historical figure, you can't deny his life, you can't deny what he did. To this chapter, even Jews can't deny that it sounds like Jesus. It points towards Jesus as being their Messiah. Next, the story of his blood. The world knows that Jesus was crucified. The question is, do they know that he died as a sacrifice to save them from death? 
But again, that's not the end of the story. Jesus rose again. But something that's very important for us to understand is not only did Jesus rise again, not only did he die for our sins, God was satisfied. He was satisfied with Jesus' death. He was satisfied that it paid the price for what we had done. Look with me again at Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Remember, the anger of the Lord had burned against Israel in the time of Isaiah, and God was about to pour his wrath upon them. He is a just God, and everyone's going to receive what they deserve. But just as we already established, and I have repeated, and I hope to repeat for the rest of my life, Jesus paid the price for us. First John chapter one. Oh, sorry. First John chapter two. Forgive me on that. First John chapter two, verse two says, "He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world." You may be familiar with the word propitiation. You may not be, but I needed to remind myself of what it means. The definition, it's similar to appeasing or, or satisfaction. So what does it mean that Jesus was the propitiation? It means that Jesus was the satisfactory payment that appeased God's wrath. And again, it's not the end of the story. At the beginning of Acts, we learn that Jesus ascended into heaven to be with the Father, and we are told by the angels that one day He will return in the same fashion. First Thessalonians covers this as well, that Jesus is going to descend from heaven and all of His faithful people, those who have passed on and those who are here currently, will rise into the air to meet Him. We will one day go home. This world is not our home. <clears throat> Are we placing too high of our hopes in Jesus? Never. Never. We have faith in His promises. If God can fulfill a prophecy made several hundred years before the birth of Jesus, then He can keep the promise of His return. Amen? As we close our study, let's recap some of the things that we've discussed today. Jesus was foretold as the coming Messiah over 700 years before He was born. 
Jesus suffered in this life, and yet, out of love, he still chose to suffer for us. And finally, God's wrath in Jesus' return. So as we enter into this new year, that's what I want us to focus on. That's where I want us to, to point our, our hearts to, our expectation, is the return of Jesus. We've done it for our lives. We've, we've given our lives to Jesus, and, and it is an expectation of His return. But let's focus on that. Let's let that be the lighthouse that shed, sheds light on our lives. So that we're not covered in darkness. Because we talked about it in the Bible class today. This world can be discouraging. This world can leave us without hope. If we look around us and we just see the, the pain and the sorrow. We look at the news. Don't look at the, I mean, look at the news. But the, there's no hope in, in looking at the news. There's no hope in looking at the direction of this world if you take Jesus out of the equation. Before we end today, I'll I'll read Isaiah 53 in its entirety. It's a larger chunk of text, but I believe it's good for us to read it in its whole context. And that'll be the end of our study today. As soon as I'm done reading, I'll step down and we'll have the invitation song. So let me first leave you with this challenge. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of the prophet Isaiah written nearly 3,000 years ago. Write them on your heart and carry them wherever you go. Do not lose hope because of the darkness of this world, and do not be desensitized to the power of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection. Renew your hope in Him and never let it go out. This week, if you haven't given your life to Jesus and you want to know more about the Lamb that we're about to read again, the Lamb that was slain, come forward after this reading. Let's have a conversation. Again, Isaiah 53, and then we'll have our song. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord or beauty to attract us? And familiar with pain. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let us stand. Are you watching by trusting in his grace? Are you watching in the blood, in the soul cleansing blood of the land? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the land? Are you walking daily by the same? God's golden mold. 